Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, the work walk, bringing you the best of management, leadership, and employment. And in this case today, we're talking about the title of and the subject matter about how do you get a million-dollar website. Lori Colwell, thank you very much for joining me today in McLaughlin at Work. Thank you for having me. You talked, uh, you and I talked very, very briefly about latent semantic indexing. Why is that important to people who are going to make their websites more commercially viable? Well, I have to say that is one of the terms that um, caused me to sort of get started on this book because uh, latent semantic indexing is just a fancy Google term for um, you know, the Google spider will come over to your site and it'll see how relevant it is for the keywords that your your site is using. And it, it's talk like that that makes small business people want to run away from search engine optimization. And frankly, it can do you a lot of good. So my mission with the book was to translate things that sound confusing into normal everyday talk. Laurie uh, Caldwell is the author, Million Dollar Website, subtitled Simple Steps to Help You Compete with the Big Boys, even on a small business budget, hone your brand image, build commerce and credibility, attract repeat customers, avoid costly mistakes, increase traffic and your bottom line. Lori Colwell, Colwell, what gives you the right to write this book? Well, that's another good question. I have been working on big corporate websites for about 11 years. Um, eight of them I've spent working on two websites for Johnson & Johnson. One of them, discovernursing.com, is number one in Google for nursing, so um, for the nursing profession. So and, and, I, and what, what does that mean when you say it is number one on Google? What, give, give, give us the context in which ratings are established. Well, uh, nursing is a, is a popular keyword in Google. Like if you wanted to know about the nursing profession, you'd go and type in nursing into Google. And 237,000 people every day do that, or every month do that. And um, the website that I work on, discovernursing.com, comes up first. So you can imagine how much traffic we get because that of that ranking. And that ranking is a process of building links and keywords and doing good research and it takes a long time to get there but once you get there you get all that organic traffic that comes from being first when someone types that word in and when somebody does go to discovernursing.com uh, are they aware that it is a commercial uh, website involving Johnson and Johnson Yes, that's the website for the Johnson & Johnson Campaign for Nursing's Future. So um, it's a popular website. It's, um, it's the number one destination for information about the nursing profession. So that just gives me, the, uh, I think, the authority to, um, to sort of translate my skills and to help the small business person, you know, build a website that's strong like that. Parenthetically, but important to you, um, today was also the launch date of another book of yours, so you've got a twofer in the market. Tell us about that second one very briefly. Yes. Well, um, last week actually was the, the launch for both of the books. The, um, the novel that I wrote is called Hollywood Car Wash, and it's, um, it's doing really well. I saw a stack of them last night in Barnes & Noble under new fiction, so that's exciting. Um, that's the story of a girl who moves from the Midwest to become a Hollywood actress, and then um, 
she goes through what they would call the Hollywood car wash of getting plastic surgery and losing weight and stuff like that. So if you like uh, this, so this is to be your summer beach reading <laughs> after you're done working on your website. <laughs> of course, after you're done working on your website. Tell us how you decided to, how you decided to begin telling somebody about their website in a way that would not frighten them in chapter one and lead them to reasonable and executable conclusions? Well, I get a lot of, because I work on websites, big websites for big companies, I get a lot of you know, anecdotal questions, small business people saying, hey, you know, just take five minutes and look at my website and what's the one thing I'm doing wrong? Or what can I do to get 100,000 people to come to my website? And over the course of you know, a couple of years of this, I thought, there really is something here. People need a one reference guide that they can just grab and go, here's a list of 10 things. If I'm doing any of these 10 things, I need to start to stop doing them. You know, like if my website is in frames, that's something I should work on. And by frames, of course, I mean if your website is under all one URL, it is not able to be seen by the search engines. So all the work that you're doing on the words and the you know, the keywords and everything can't be seen. T take it down for the uninitiate among us, and there are many who listen to McLaughlin at work here, your audio guide to the workplace talking about your, in an audio fashion, how to create a million-dollar website. And maybe Lori and I will talk about the audio component to websites, which we discussed earlier, but not in great detail. Um, when, when people uh, begin to put their website together, uh, give us just give us a, a brief background on what you said about frames, so that you put it in the language like you did in the book. What 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 is what are the sort of the what am I going to say the the amateurish mistakes of putting a website together, like frames, like HTML, like word keyword and underscoring as you did with me, keyword in order to get found. The keyword is critical. Well, it's it's. It's good. Um, if you built your website under something like a .Mac or a, uh, anything that where you, when you go to the website, the URL doesn't change. It doesn't um, break out an individual page okay. like, you know, mywebsite.com slash about us or slash sales or something like that. If the URL doesn't change, then your website is, is locked in what we call frames. So um, it's all under one frame set, which, which used to work really well before you know, the whole search engine market got really competitive. It used to work well to have just something up there. And now it's a matter of you're going to put that up there and it's going to be like you have nothing up there because Google can't see it. Um, it's the same thing if you build your website entirely out of flash. Some businesses will pay a company thousands and thousands of dollars to build a website out of Adobe Flash. Um, and that's a, it's, it looks beautiful, but to Google it looks invisible. So it's, it's very interesting that you, would, that you would put it the way you did because how many, people, how many people do you suspect who put their websites together or even ask somebody to do it really understand what you just said about having a single URL and therefore if it doesn't change, it means it's in frames. When you talk to most of the people who 
might come upon you to ask for advice, do they understand the frame issue and the single URL versus the breakout? They don't. And so what we've kind of done, what I've done in the book is we kind of go step by step. And, you know, because I found a lot of people, small business people especially, and, and nobody is to be blamed for this. It, websites aren't your favorite thing. Nobody disputes that. It's just that what you end up with, you need to be um, you need to be enough involved in the making of it that you that it's not harming you, you know, at least. So, you know, if you if you like selling uh, dog toys or you know dog food or whatever, that's fine. Uh, no one's saying you have to be a code person or a website person, and that's what I've really found. People, their brain shuts off the minute you say something like, "Well, your your site, can you?" can you tell me the statistics for it or is it in frames or whatever? They don't know. They don't want to know. Um, and to me, a tiny bit of knowledge can go so far in helping your business so much that, you know, just the book, it's, it's you know, just reading the book and kind of employing some of the solutions in it will help you so much. Yeah, and even, even just hearing you speak, I can... I can understand. I can understand that. And also, let me just ask you: when you, when you put this together, you must have done a. Um, a lot of people write books because they couldn't find the information elsewhere. Is there not, to date, a book that has addressed as well? I, the answer is no, and, and I appreciate that. <laughs> but well, what did you find out when you tried to fi- when you tried to learn how to do this, or to see if there were any other reference books on the subject matter? Well, there, you know, if you go to the bookstore, you can find a book about building a website. You can find a book about search engine optimization. You can find a book about a small business. But what you can't find is all this information all in one place. You know, like, like I, a, like myself, a consultant, were to come to your website and say, well, you need an opt-in on your, on your homepage so that people can sign up and learn more about you, you know. This is kind of like your, it's like your website boot camp, you know, or, or a smorgasbord of things. Because my understanding is nobody wants to read an entire book about keyword search optimization. You know, they don't have that kind of time. So if you can pick up this book, and that's why I wrote the book, because to me, there only needed to be 15 or 20 pages on each subject because that's all the small business person has time for. Is it possible for somebody who is reasonably uh, adept at this to, to put together, let me back up, is it more important that somebody knows what they're talking about so they can answer questions appropriately, or do you suspect that it is common that many small business people can actually put their own websites together? What's your advice? I think that um, I think that you can put your own website together uh, if you're just starting out. It's absolutely fine for you to put your own website together. Um, there is a lot of hosting services, GoDaddy, um, WordPress. You you can you can put a website up and do a decent enough job at it that you will get traffic and you will start to make sales. And then once you start to make sales or get money, then you can improve your technology. There's nothing stopping you getting into the marketplace. I just would like it if people would do keyword research, write content that doesn't have typos, you know. <laughs> like just because you're on a small scale doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing the most excellent job you can do. 
You know, I want people to have good usability, good information architecture, no matter what level or budget they have. Is in putting a website to, together, I think that people may make the mistake, this is in the form of a question, I'll make it a statement. People make the mistake that if they have a website, people will get to it somehow. They don't really understand keywords and their importance. Could you break down the imp of how people who don't know anything about how do we end up in the websites that we do? And perhaps you could just briefly take us to a Google page, because that's what most people do, to, uh, to understand the importance of keyword verification on somebody's individual website. I like to... Um I like to really simplify the keyword, the whole game of keywords um, and search engine optimization by saying keywords are like your, like your Internet supply and demand. Um, you have a demand, so you go to Google, and what you want is dog food. So you type in dog food. And what you get is, uh, <clears throat> is the supply. So, um, and, and the keywords are what connect the two. So um, in order for you to have um, – let's do that now. Let's type in dog food to okay. Google. Okay, good. <laughs> let's all do that together. <laughs> Very well done. And does it make any difference whether you use a comma or whether you have it as one word dog food? Or I think the search engines have become more sophisticated about that. Um, you know, I – I like to keep things as simple as possible, so I, I don't use any of the things like the quotations or the comma. Although, if, you, um, if you're interested uh, and, and you want a little takeaway from this, I will tell you that um, if you type in, a lot of people these days are typing in things like whole phrases into Google, and that is what we call a long tail keyword. Um, and that would be like, what kind of dog food do I feed my puppy? So they'll, they'll type that entire phrase into Google. And what we're seeing now is a lot of people will take those phrases and then write articles about them. And that's a great way to get traffic to your website because um, that, like that supply and demand, if you, put a, if you put that into your website, then the person who's typing in something long tail like that will automatically be directed to your website. And that is a great way to capture um, the smaller, um, the, the less trafficked keywords because you won't be competing as much because Purina is not going to put what kind of dog food do I feed my puppy into their website. Mm -hmm. Now for people who, um, in terms of the recognition, is it important uh, when, it, when it gets picked up, is in fact they'll only match up with every word in a long tail description? Oh, well, that's just for the long tail example. But the, um, the, main, the main thing you need to do is you need to go to Google. And the, actually, the, um, you, can go to, you can go to Google itself and then type in Google Keyword Tool, and you'll get the, um, you'll get the tool, and it's free. You can play around with it. And I think not enough people do this that have small business websites because they feel like it's um they feel like somehow it's difficult or they don't know where it is or or you know that's a whole field and i, I don't i don't want to dabble in it but I, I think you should dabble in it go to that website type in something that you're interested in and you can see all the searches that happen over the course of a month 
And then you can think to your, you can copy all those keywords and stick them in your website. That is a good place to start. <laughs> it's an excellent, excellent tip. Sliding away from that, just because it came to mind, um, audience figures or how many people go to your website. Are there uh, are there methods to do that that you can just plug in? Are there people who are? Is there some groups that are counting every website and how many hits that come onto a website other than Google Analytics, which I think people understand reasonably well? I well, I think um, you know actually that's a that's a good topic because I think um, this this all goes towards you know your more knowledge for you and your website is always better than less knowledge. So you need to have a good understanding of how many people are coming to your website, how long they're staying. If there's, you know, broken pages on your website, you need to fix them. So um, I, I recommend Google Analytics or like a Web Trends or um, anything, or if, you're, um, if your server offers an analytics program that you have to pay a little more for, like $3 a month or something, get that program because that's going to help you a lot to learn who's coming to your website and if they're leaving right away, then you need to bulk up your content. I don't want to take you away. I don't want to be jumping too far afield here. Um, in terms of helping people, and that's what your book is designed to do, and that's why people should actually, that's why people should buy the book, is to, uh, to learn these tricks. Um, take us through your book ever so, ever so quickly to um, identify the subject matters that you cover in, in putting together a million-dollar website? Sure. Well, I, um, I like to say, you know, I, uh, I start with clients, and they, they all, 100% of them say, oh, you know what I want is more traffic. And, and then I like to take them back to the beginning of the book, which is let's talk about your website. Um, let's talk about who is, the, who is the target audience for your website. Is your website designed appropriately for the search engines? for your target audience. For instance, if you're selling hunting equipment and your website is pink, we're going to need to work on that before we drive 100,000 people to the website. Um, just because, you know, you're, you're competing against people who, big, big, big businesses, they know their target audience. And so you need to do what you do in the best way you can do it. So, you know, Fixing uh, typos, grammatical errors, anything that could make you look like an amateur, you need to get rid of that. Um, anything that you know looks dated or it's uh, it's it's broken technology or something, that's going to go a little ways towards um, making people not trust you as a small business. So first, make sure the ship is airtight. You know, then we move, and that's basically the first part of the book. And then um, in the second part, we kind of work on rebuilding that if we, if, you know, if we have to, uh, reorganizing the content so we have good information architecture. So if, the, um, uh, if, it, if, it is not, if your ship is not airtight, these are the tools that you need. These are the places you have to go to make the repair. That's right. We're going to shore it up over you know, three or four chapters. And it's not, it's not painful. You know, in, the, in the book, there's an, an example of a fictional guy. His name's Bob and he sells dog biscuits. And um, we take him from his atrocious website at the beginning to his website at the end, which looks awesome, and he gets traffic and sells dog biscuits. So, um, there, so I just want to say, no matter where you are in the process, there definitely is hope and there is something you can do to make yourself your website better right now. 
and it is is the web is that worth knowing now because when you do it it'll it'll give you a good foundation for what's going to come or once we have that information and, and I know for small businesses they need it now rather than later but is the evolution of the web going to be such that we're really talking about sharpening a number two pencil right now and there are going to be a lot of other things that are going to come in to take its place? Well, you know, that's another good question. I, I would say you have to get in at some time. You know, just because you haven't gotten in before, you have to jump in the stream. You know, and we, we, we'll work on... Um, that's that's basically what we're work on. We're working on ten years of internet knowledge in this book. So you're getting your crash course, and then when the technology changes, you'll be more than prepared to adopt the new technology. Well, and I, 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 that's an interesting point. Now stay with that because I think that people may not may not fully appreciate this. This book really covers. Th th this takes us ten years. That that's from. Enough of the beginning where you could build your own until now where we have the tools and a variety of things. So it's a 10-year period, and this book covers 10 years. Well, it really does. I mean, 10 years ago, if you'll remember, I mean, I was working in the dot-com boom in San Francisco, and really it was 10 years ago that, that websites were all just words. And then, you know, web design took over, and then, the, and then websites were super fancy, and nobody could find anything, and, you know... We were and we were all just trying to find a balance between the two, and so this covers concepts like usability, user interface design, in a way that's palatable for a small business person to take away and go, I can really use that, you know. And that was my whole purpose with writing the book to sort of demystify the field, because I think there's too much of a separation between. Uh, big business and they can afford big website companies and big consultants and small business and they feel like, well, I can't afford any of that stuff, so I'm, I'm just going to put up what I can put up. This book for you and the you is Lori Culwell and the book is Million Dollar Website. came out last week, did you say, Lori? Yes, it came out on the 5th. I'm so excited. Very exciting. Um, a Million Dollar Website, simple steps to help you compete with the big boys even on a small business budget, and uh, Lori among was a part of the dot-com boom in San Francisco and now is a little bit further south and is um, has provided this book for the rest of us, if you will. How does it, um, how does it compare to something like Websites for Dummies? I don't even know whether there is one, but why, why this book? Give a plug for readability, understanding, and output. From your book, well, the um, the websites for dummies book is a fine book. I I also recommend that book, but um, it's not the same as my book because um, my book would imply that you already have a website or you have a website idea and an idea of how to put it together. So it's um, so it's it's helping you to put it together in a um, in a way that is uh, usability-friendly and also information architecture it covers. And, I mean, the, the Websites for Dummies book is going to nuts and bolts help you put a website together. It's not necessarily going to address who's my target audience, um, what keyword should I use when I'm building the content. Like, this is more, it covers, my book covers everything. Yes. And, and, when so, and then when it gets to the end, it, it, it's really going to help you um, 
determine what kind of social media you need to use, um, what kind of personal stories you need to use, uh, whether you need a blog or a newsletter. or The websites for Dummies Book isn't going to help you do that. But get that book, too. It's good. <laughs> uh, no, I, and I appreciate that. I think that's, uh, I think that's very fair, and it really does uh, give an indication of where somebody should be in the continuum. Um, in our closing minutes here with uh, Laurie Cowell, always important to appreciate what to avoid. And I noticed that one of the bars says avoid costly mistakes. The, as you point out, this book is not for the rank amateur who has nothing, but for people who have already uh, started, what are the two or three most costly mistakes that they will, um, that they will make? I would say um, one, one thing I see all the time is people using their entire budget to give over their website control to an agency who then builds the site out of flash, um, which is, a, in my opinion, a, a big waste of money. And, um, you know, I have one client who spent $15,000 on a flash website, which then, as I said before, can't be seen by Google. So that's not helping him at all. People are not help, people are not typing in his company name because they don't know about his company yet. So, you know, so, so, but be specific there. Say again because you did. But what is what is Flash, and why would why would a competent company suggest that putting together something in Flash, a, a website in Flash? Why would a well, consultant a suggest that? Well, a website design company is not necessarily concerned with your Google ranking or your PR. They're concerned with your, their communication of your brand. So they're going to provide what they think is the best, you know, the best output, which to them is flash. And to you as your own advocate for your own small business, you put your foot down and say, don't build my website out of something that a, that a search engine can't see. But you don't know to say that until you've read my book. And, and when you say flash, uh, what what is Flash and what are the alternatives to Flash and how many how many flashes are there and how many alternatives to Flash are there? Um, Flash is a technology that um, that was invented by Macromedia and it's um, now owned by Adobe. So basically, Flash is um, a program that you would use to make a little movie um, on your website. You know, a little animation or something like that. And about Seven years ago, companies started to make their entire websites out of Flash, which, as I would said, um, it, it, when, the Google, um, when Google comes to visit your website and it's made out of Flash, it just sees a bubble. It doesn't see any of the words that you've put in, nothing. I, I would say just build your website out of something that's HTML-based and not flash or inside a frame or anything like that. Like you want your words to be out there so the public can see them and that you can they can work for you. So uh, what you are saying, and I'll translate, but if, if uh, flash is not word-based and simplistically HTML is? Yes, exactly. Um, two or three other uh, last costly mistakes other than flash? Um, let's see. Broken technology on your website will cost you money, um, meaning if you have a program that, um, say you're selling something, and the shopping cart program that you're using consistently crashes and dumps people out before they're done making their purchase, um, you need to look into changing that program. And if you're getting customer service complaints that, you know, 
uh, oh, I, I got to the end of my purchase, and then it um, and then it erased all my information. That is something very, very important to make sure you fix. Um, and I know that sounds trivial, but I have had questions. You know, oh, I I have heard from a couple of people that my shopping cart doesn't work that well, and I'm like, that is what you need to fix right now. And and. If you if that is happening to one of the listeners at McLaughlin at work, how will they know that's true? Other than they're not getting the sales, will they will they see a break somehow when somebody comes on that they get blown up as they enter the cashier line? Um, I would say if you get a customer service complaint, that if you get one customer service complaint, statistically it means it's happened to ten people before somebody takes the time to tell you about it. So once you hear about it, um, it's not necessarily that you would be able to see it yourself, but once you get a complaint, I definitely would say look into changing servers. Uh, Another example of something that that I think could cost you money is um, if you know that you have a product or a, a sale a sales proposition that people will really like, it should be in your homepage. And that sounds like... You know, that sounds like common sense, but a lot of website stuff is actually common sense. Um, I did some consulting for a popular audio video place, and what they were famous for was selling laptops. And my main question was, why isn't that laptop on the homepage? Because that's why people were going to their website. And when they put the, web, the, the laptop on the homepage, sales of that product went up 400%. The uh, homepage is an important entry point. Exactly. And, the homepage uh, is your first impression. And, you know, I don't want to put pressure on you, but it's the first thing that people see, you know, and they make their judgment in the first four seconds. Laurie, is there hope for people who are doing this, is it, is your book a hopeful book? Do you do you start out with saying you can get there? This is not uh, the proverbial rocket science, but it is something that we're reading. Your book will help, and there is hope. Not only is it a hopeful book, it's an all hopeful book. I I really really the whole mission of the of writing the book was to bring this technology and simplify it so that. Anybody who picks it up can open it up and go, that's going to totally help me. You know, I'm going to take the music that can't be turned off off my website, and that's going to make my sales go up. Or um, that's another example of something you could be doing wrong. <laughs> or, you, you know, you, even, you know, anybody, as a web user, you ask yourself, what is it that annoys me about websites? And if your website has that thing, you should take it off. And presumably everything that annoys people about websites can be found in the million-dollar website to be corrected, to make it the million-dollar website. Well, it can be found in the book. There is a list of the top ten most annoying things. <laughs> what a great place to start. Uh, Lori uh, Colwell, the book, Million Dollar Website, the imprint uh, Prentice Hall Press, the Penguin Group, and the quote from the director of the campaign, uh, for uh, Nursing's Future, uh, Andrea Higgum, I think is uh, significant. It said, Laurie Colwell's insight has made DiscoverNursing.com the award-winning website it is today. This book is an invaluable resource for anyone 
with a small business, and I should add, with a small business who has a website, which is everybody who has a small business. Exactly. Lori, thanks so much for being with me. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, your audio guide to the website, to the website, well, it is true, audio guide to the workplace, which nowadays always includes a website, and we would encourage you to pick up Lori Cowell's book to make yours even more effective. Lori, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Following up on our conversation with Lori Culwell, a million-dollar website, I've asked my colleague Josh Rockoff, who's the chief executive officer of Strike Interactive, uh, to explain what he does and to give a little bit of um, his take on what the million-dollar website should look like and uh, parenthetically, as Lori did, is to how to avoid costly mistakes. Josh, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thank you, Paul, for having me. First off, what's Strike Interactive? Strike Interactive is a digital interactive agency specializing in providing high-level or strong ROI results online. So we're only focused on the web, and we do web strategy, design, development, and search and viral campaigns after you've completed a website. Now, you've got a background that's quite international and began with the web in its infancy. Give people a sense of that. So I started out in 1994 uh, with, uh, at, as, a as a freshman on the University of Pennsylvania's campus. Uh, started out building, uh, well, I took ESPN's website and literally copied it because that was really the first website that I had noticed out there uh, and learned how to build from using their techniques uh, and going from there. I built the first e-commerce website in Germany, uh, and that was actually the first e-commerce website in Europe. Uh, and what year was that? That was in 1995. Wow. And then how'd you get that gig? I was actually in a beer garden drinking, uh, and like most college freshmen do, yeah, I was hanging out overseas and trying to uh, increase my world by also uh, learning German and placing out of my German requirement. And was sitting in a beer garden and had uh, been talking with a couple friends about the web. And the next thing you know. Uh, the beer garden owner came over and asked me to build his website in exchange for 24 cases of beer and $10,000. Uh, I was more excited at the time about the beer than I was about the money. Were you fluent in German at the time? I was fluent in German at the time. And, and you set the, the website up in German? We set the website up in both English and German. And what was the, the cultural reaction of setting up a website in Germany versus doing one in the U.S.? What did you find? Well, re in reality, there was almost nobody really using the web in Germany as it was in the United States. It was still very much in an infancy. The United States was about three years into the web, and Germany wasn't even touching it yet. So what was interesting about it was it was considered a strong novelty. It was sort of like the luxury of having a fax machine in 1983. Um, but in reality, people started seeing it as a huge economic driver, and it sort of started a, a spurt among small microbreweries or micro distilleries that you have in the United States, but also in Germany, where they started to see it as a great opportunity to make revenue and turn revenue online from an, a vehicle that they never had before. Did, did they consider it an American vehicle that they were learning? Absolutely. I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, Europe is a very big follower of American trends. So even now, if you look at European, the European market, they're about five years behind in e-commerce and in just general web acceptance. So people in Germany very much look at it, and the rest of Europe as well, very much look at it as an American novelty. At the time, they saw it purely as an American novelty, as a fad, as something that would be sort of nice, um, but not really something that's going to last. Maybe like um, Facebook. Maybe like Facebook or maybe more like, like the phone. <laughs> right. 
so they um, they really uh, didn't embrace the technology for at least another three or four years after I had left uh, Europe at that point. Um, but uh, what they viewed it as is a huge economic driver, uh, or at least as a way to spread the word very quickly and easily for a lot of these microbreweries who couldn't afford a traditional marketing campaign. And to fast forward to where you are today, and, and you and I have worked together and I've heard your presentations, the focus on ROI it gets people's attention. When did that enter the vocabulary? I think it it's always been in my vocabulary. Uh, ever since I started the, doing the web back in 95, uh, you know, from 95 through 98, I had my first company building websites, both mostly in Europe, um, and it's really specializing in Eastern European government sites. At that time, people were talking about ROI. Even, and the web wasn't based on any kind of return on investment. It was purely informational and brochureware. So, but at that time, people were really saying, this is a way for us to save money by making it easier to, for us to distribute content and distribute information. And you worked for governments, too. I worked for governments. It was Eastern what, European what, what, governments. What, was their, uh, what, was, what did they want as a term, in terms of return? Well, what, what they really wanted was traffic. They also wanted the, to get their tourism trade up. I mean, this was Eastern Europe. The, the Cold War had been over since 89, but people were still very much hesitant about going and venturing out into Eastern Europe. So a lot of these countries really wanted to get their, na their, word, their name out there and get the word out that these are hotspots for destinations. The Czech Republic was very successful with that. When I lived there in 97 and 98, there were, I would say, 50 to 100,000 expat U.S. Uh, citizens who were living in Prague. So the Czech Republic had done a very, very, very good job of getting their, their word out about themselves. Taking another step forward to 2009, mm -hmm. what, what do you know from where you started, what, well, how have things changed? What, it's, it's changed so much that it's a naive question, but for people who are, who are less concerned about the past, but would like to know what you've learned from the past, what is it? You know, it's an interesting question because what's very different between 2000, when I originally founded the company, we just celebrated our ninth birthday, to now, is that People are no longer just looking at the web as a as brochureware, informationware, and they're also not looking at it like it's a fad or something. That it's a luxury. It's now a necessity. People look at it much more in tune with their own business models. And even though there's only of all the companies out there, only 28% of them have an e-commerce website or a money-oriented website, the acceptance rate for the internet and then e-commerce in, in general is a much higher statistic. If you, you can't go around literally walking through Times Square, going through uh, Istanbul, you know, even taking a ferry ride up in Nova Scotia, you can't escape the, the, either the power of the internet, the, the push that the internet has, or more importantly, how much people really interact with the web. So what it has done from 2000 to 2009 is it's changed people's th way of thinking about it. Now people look at it like, okay, I, not only can I just spread the word about this and talk about what we do and talk about what we, can't, you know, what we offer, but I can also sell our service, raise funding from a donation standpoint, also raise dollars from a selling a product standpoint, but also generate a lot more interest through a number of mediums. What's interesting about this whole approach and what I th come back to almost in every single conversation is that the ROI idea is not new. I mean, we've been talking about ROI for centuries. The fact is the medium has changed, 
but the marketing, the approach is the same. It's just now on a much more personal or interpersonal level than it was than it was in the past where it was only on regional or province or city or, or state. And to remind uh, the good listeners of McLaughlin at Work, I'm speaking with Josh Rockoff, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Strike Interactive. Is, uh, Josh is as global as the internet is, although he makes most of his house in New York. Um, Josh, the other thing that, that plays into McLaughlin at Work and is somewhat, off, uh, somewhat self-serving, but the fact of the matter is that uh, not four or five years ago, uh, you were listening to uh, internet radio over small uh, small computer speakers, uh, or you just didn't think that there was an audio component. And certainly in the last few years, but now it's sort of anticipated that, A, people don't know where sound comes from anymore. They don't know whether it's terrestrial radio or whether it's streaming or not. And they expect or anticipate high quality regardless of the mechanism. Yeah, I mean, look at what's happened with the iTunes revolution and what Apple has done with the iPod. I mean, literally, they put the turned the whole music industry on its head, uh, and what the idea of the ability to take your your music port, you know, with the portable music now, the key piece of this, or the thing that I find most interesting about all of this, is that it you have music, video, content all being pushed in a variety of vehicles, no longer just in in the sense of that box that you had to listen to or out of the computer, that fixed computer. You can listen to the radio over your iPod, you know, through podcasting. You can and listen. You, you can listen to what's on your iPod in your car through you your car listen, speaker. Exactly. You can listen to your what's on your iTunes through your TV or through your stereo system. So now it's almost reversed. It used to be where everything was powered by the central nervous system, which was the stereo. Now the stereo is dependent on your computer. But the computer isn't necessarily a computer. It can be an iPod. It can be your car. It can be your television. There's, it can be the DVR box that a lot of people have now installed into their homes. So there's so many different vehicles now that it's totally changed how both music companies are looking at it, both retailers are selling it, and how consumers are listening to it. Let's uh, move the conversation back to the kinds of clients, perhaps sophisticated uh, perhaps not, but they either need a website or have one that they think is primitive. They come to Strike Interactive. What are the steps you take them through to build a more productive website? Well, it's a very interesting question. I think our model is somewhat similar to several others in the industry, but with one notable exception. Uh, the very first thing we ask our customers, what do they want? It's, so, it's always lost. A lot of bigger agencies, a lot of big companies, even small companies, when they hear that a client needs a website, they immediately start jumping and saying, okay, here's what we can do. Here's how we do this. Here's what the steps we take. They don't even ask the question of what do you want? And that's a huge problem for a lot of companies because what winds up happening is clients don't, clients just accept what's being dictated to them because more likely than not, they're looking at that company that they're using or the company that they're interacting with as the expert. And technology becomes the medium. And technology becomes the medium. What happens a lot with agencies and design firms, regardless of size, is people fall in love with one or two of two things. They fall in love with the technology or they fall in love with the design. And what winds up happening is without understanding what the client wants, but then researching that and figuring out what kind of customer base they have, what kind of acceptance they have in terms of technology, also in terms of design, what their competitors are doing, and also what their approach is after they complete the site. 
all of those things match up to what you're going to actually get as an end deliverable. If you don't figure those things out up front, your, your, your website might be a total success internally, but it will have some problems externally. And then you'll be spending some significant dollars trying to retrofit it to fit what you really want it to do. And for somebody in your position who's done a number of these, um, you are able to help shape the dialogue as to what people want. Invariably, I would think that they want something uh, something like, I need a lot of hits. I knew I want a lot of traffic. They sort of want the, um, the results before they understand what's going to bring people to the website. Well, what I say to clients is, I'm not so concerned with getting traffic to you. I can get you traffic. That's not a problem. My concern now is, how do I turn that traffic into dollars? I mean, today, it's very important that we get people to come to a website, not just to visit the site, but also to buy the, on the site, whether it's a service, if you're a consulting firm or if you're a, an accountant or you're a professional service firm, those kinds of people are still selling stuff on their sites or you're selling a product or you're a nonprofit or you're a government. All of those different areas, all are still selling. So there's a key piece of this thing. Now, a problem that a lot of people have, and there's a, a massive flaw is that they start building a site without having that direction. What you really want to make sure of as you're building your website is you're always asking that fundamental question to yourself, literally on every single step of the way. Does this fit what I'm looking for my customer to do? A lot of people fall into the trap. They try to dictate terms to their customer, just like the agencies and design shops and programming shops try to dictate their terms to their clients. Everybody's trying to dictate their terms. Problem is the clients and the customers don't want that. On each step, you have to invite your customer in and give them a reason to come back. If you don't give them that, regardless of what they do, what you do, it's not going to work. From the moment that somebody wants to uh, find somebody to help, and say they have identified uh, Strike Interactive, what makes a good client? What should they come to you with in order to achieve the best result? I think the first thing is to look at what websites they like or what they don't like uh, and document it. It doesn't have to be more than a couple of bullet points, but it should definitely be documented. It's a very interesting um, thing that a lot of people do is they say, oh, yeah, I need a website. Okay, cool. What do you need? I don't know. Or I don't like my website. Really, why? I don't know. It's just not working for me. Well, what do you mean by not working? I don't know. That's isn't, isn't it true? Isn't it true, though, and I've heard you speak to this, so this is, a, this is a fastball down the middle of the plate, but isn't it true that website design now, to some extent... Um, that there is a pro forma and that people going to websites anticipate seeing something a certain way and so therefore somebody may come to you with a website that they might like and you would say very pretty ineffective. Yes, I mean there are certain standards that you find on the web today. Um, you always find the logo in the upper left hand corner, you always find a search box in the upper right hand corner, the shopping cart box is always in the upper right hand corner for e-commerce websites. There's always a footer at the bottom of the page whether it's a line to the left or a line to the right. It doesn't really that's not really something that's a standard. However, that doesn't mean you can't turn those conventions on its head. But you have to do it effectively, but you also need to do it for your audience. For instance, IZOD Center is a website we've built. Um, IZODCenter.com. Say that again. IZOD Center okay. is a website we've built for the former Continental Airlines Arena out in uh, the Meadowlands. Their logo is not in the upper left-hand corner. It's up in the upper right. The Meadowlands is in New Jersey, so we're not too parochial here yes, for our global exactly. audience. I apologize for that. Um, so, yes, the Meadowlands, which is in East Rutherford, New Jersey, is where the New York Giants, the New York football Giants play, as well as the New Jersey Nets. We also have a concert hall as okay. well uh, inside of the, the stadium. What's interesting about that site is that 
the logo that would normally traditionally be in the upper left-hand corner, we put on the right. We took a picture and, and put that on the left-hand side and made it much more of a streamlined interface. Now, the emphasis on that website was not to push the name of the, the logo, but to push the products, push the concerts, push the events. So we took the logo, which is normally a, the first focal point that a person sees, we took that out of the equation. Now, was that tactical? Yes. Would people criticize that? Absolutely. But what we had to look at what the focus was, and the client's focus was not the words IZOT Center. The focus was Dream Day, or excuse me, Green Day, not Dream Day. Um, New Jersey Nets, um, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Daily Circus. Those were the focus, not so much the- It was the events, know. not the venue. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, are you uh, hopeful for design, web design? People should not feel particularly intimidated. This is something that's now part of the business talk dialogue. And uh, for Strike Interactive and others, you can make them better, but people should not go into it with a sense of dread. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, what I'm hearing a lot of now, especially in this recessionary economy, is that people are like, oh, wow, I've got to spend more money on my website. And I still just don't get what I'm, where I'm going with this thing. Uh, and I don't know how to convert it. And I also don't know whether the experts are actually saying what they are saying. So what people really need to understand is most people, I would say 80% of them, know what they want. There are lots of statistics supporting that. So in reality, people just need to express what they're saying. And if they work with the right vendor who listens to them and listens to what they're saying before they get started, I think their project will be a successful one. They just need to make sure that they go back to their fundamentals. Find what's comfortable for them. Don't try to shoot for the moon. Find what's comfortable, take that into as a, your, your art direction, and then use that from a technological perspective and take it to the next level. Paul McLaughlin with uh, Josh Rockoff, Strike Interactive, www.strikeinteractive.com. That concludes our uh, foray into websites. I'm very grateful to Lori Colwell and her book, Million Dollar Website, and to Josh Rockoff and his participation in bringing this to all the good folks out there who listen to McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, the work wonk here, We're talking to you about more business in the issues of management, leadership, and employment in the workplace. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your premier audio guide to the workplace, discussing today, brand new day, the highs and lows of starting a small business with Lara Solomon, who is both the author of the book, The Keeper of the Diary, and the creator of Mox, which is the small business about which the book is written. Lara, mm. welcome. Thank you. So, which came first? The product or the book? The product, just. So it started with the product. So Give us a brief description of the product and then how the book developed. Uh, well, the product is Mox. They're socks for um, mobile phones, iPods, and digital cameras. The idea is that they protect it, protect your device from getting scratched. Plus, they personalize it because there's a range of different designs and colors. And they stretch so one size fits all. Um, now, I initially started by um, looking for the product. And then once I had the product, I started keeping a diary of um, what I was doing in my business every day. And from that diary, I developed the book. The business and the book diary started when? Well, 2000, beginning of 2004, I started sort of working on the business. So I actually found the product in September 2003. 
I um, used to keep a diary of all the holidays I took. And when I was younger, I used to keep a diary as well. But yeah, I enjoy writing a diary. And having started the diary, as I understand it, on the suggestion of your father, yes. who is your business advisor. Yes. He said, you should keep a diary because, you know, one day you might like to turn it into a book. And I was like, yeah, yeah, like you do with your dad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, good advice. Back in uh, 2007, I decided that I, I just met a lot of people in business who were having issues with their business. And I knew they were the same things that I was having and, and it wasn't them. And it was just, that's what it's like being in small business. So I wanted to write that book to show them that it wasn't just them. And as with your business, um, Mox, which are socks for cell phones, sourced out of, in, uh, out of uh, China, uh, that was the same uh, method you used for publishing your book? Yeah, um, I got it printed in China. I did actually use Australian editors and proofreaders. So yeah, I uh, got it printed there and then shipped it into Australia and um, started selling it. Give, uh, give listeners here to McLaughlin at Work uh, a sense of what it is like to publish, self-publish a book. Give us a cu- couple of steps of advice the mechanics of how you get it done. Okay. Um, first of all, um, I thought it would be done in like, well, I was thinking, you know, three months tops. It takes a bit longer than that. So you have to expect it to take a while because um, I had to um, had an editor and two proofreaders read it. Um, so that took quite a long time for them to do the proofreading and then for me to make the changes they suggested. Um, I think it's important to get someone that understands where you're coming from and what you're actually trying to do with your book because um, otherwise you're not going to have the end result that you actually want. And so so it, it's similar to a business. You've got yeah. to understand who your audience is. Why are you writing this book? Yes. Did you have a reason for writing the book? Yeah. Um, what I, was that? My reason is to um, help other people who are in small business to understand that it's not the problem in their business is not necessarily them, but it's issues that all businesses face and that they're not alone really. I didn't really decide on a length before I started. It's, um, I just wrote it and I got to the end and that was the length. <laughs> it's um, about 80,000 words, which is actually quite long, I've been told, for a book like this. Um, and what it, in terms of what it would encompass, I wanted to be completely transparent and open so that people would understand what had happened and what things went wrong. And what things went well. And share the joys and frustrations. That's right, yes. What was the major hurdle in moving it from what you had written down to um, the 5,000 books that you received to start distributing? Probably the biggest thing was finding a distributor. Um, so I had to find someone. I mean, I could have done it myself, but I wanted to find a company that could actually send the book out and sell it into stores for me because I, I can't physically obviously go and call in every single bookshop in Australia or any country for that matter. So that was the challenge, finding someone that would pick it up. Uh, And one of those joys and uh, frustrations is the web, going digital. Yes, I am looking at publishing it as an e-book now. Um, What has been the response to uh, Brand New Day, the highs and lows of starting a small business? It's been really positive. I get emails every single week from people that have read it telling me how much they enjoy it, how fantastic they think it is, and how inspired they are after reading it, which is exactly what I wanted. And uh, perhaps lastly, who should buy this book? Everyone. <laughs> the best book ever out. That's good. That's, uh, that should be exactly <laughs> your opinion. I'm glad you have that. So uh, seriously, probably someone that um, is either in small business um, or is looking to get into small business or maybe there's someone in your family that is 
so helps you in your business and that you'd like them to understand a bit more about what it's like because that has been the biggest eye-opener my family have read it and suddenly gone oh wow we actually know what you do now and um that has been a huge turnaround for them and they're actually now a lot more supportive in what i'm doing it's an encouraging read yes there's things that don't go so well but there's a lot of things that do go really well and um it's very inspirational in terms of you you can do this you just have to get out there and you did yes Lara Solomon, the uh, owner, creator of Mox, Cell Phone Socks, and the author of Brand New Day, The Highs and Lows of Starting a Small Business. Lara, thanks for sharing the book and your business with with us today, and uh, good luck with both. Thank you. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, The Work Wonk, your audio guide to the workplace. Speaking this afternoon with Jennifer Coots-Clay, she is the author of Jetliner Cabins, which traces the evolution of the Jetliner Cabin from the early 70s through to today. The book was originally came out in its uh, first hardcover edition in 2003, commemorating the centenary of the Wright Brothers' flight. And a second edition was released in 2006, covering the same material but updating it and beginning to project out to the latest fleet of airline uh, interiors. Uh, Jennifer Coots-Clay, welcome, and uh, tell us about Jetliner Cabins, but first start off with a brief reason why this book could only come from you. Well, thank you, Paul, for the invitation, and I hope your listeners will be interested to know that there is a book that details the evolution of the cabin of the aircraft from the beginning of the era of mass air transportation, meaning the 747 coming into operation. And now we have well over 2 billion passengers a year on the scheduled airlines alone worldwide. And my book has um, got uh, 450 pictures and an index of a thousand items and 55,000 words of text and covers um, a great number of uh, topics. Now, the main sections are product branding, passenger experience, cabin maintenance, and the marketing challenge. And the paperback book has um, descriptions and pictures of the Airbus A380, the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, which is poised for first flight very soon. Also, the uh, Bombardier C-Series, due to fly in 2013, and the Embraer Very Light Jets, personal um, jets, the small jets. So there's something there for everybody. And, and I should point out, not only is this richly detailed in terms of pictures, but there's a very stiff technical and professional component to the book. Yes. Um, the reviews all state that the details um, really carry the book um, to a level where you might say, oh, it's almost a textbook. But it is written in normal English. It's not in engineering secret speak, you know, with technical terms that are very difficult to understand. Um, so, yes, my background is, I have a technical background, um, but coming at the business from a marketing uh, origin, I worked at British Airways um, on the marketing side. I then moved into operations. Uh, I was the first woman operations manager in British Airways. I worked in the hangars. I put uh, the 25,000 individual items that go onto a Boeing 747 prior to departure, if we're talking 
talking about food and beverage and blankets and toiletries and headrest covers and safety belts and in-flight literature pockets. I worked in those areas. I worked on Concord for more than a couple of years. And um, then uh, when I became a consultant, I found that I was uh, working with airlines that wanted to know much more than what I would call the public relations aspects or the aesthetic aspects of a cabin. And that's when I felt it was time really to write a book. I had been writing articles on a regular basis, but the book was the important thing. And that book is Jetliner Cabins. Jennifer Coots Clay is the authoress, and it is a brilliant book, well worth uh, the read and the viewing. Uh, Jennifer, thanks very much for being on with McLaughlin at work this afternoon. Thank you for the invitation, and the book costs $50. And is it available through Amazon and the better booksellers? Yes, through Amazon worldwide and uh, good bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Paul.